Hello, I'm Tom Calvard, and this is um, the latest episode in my series of podcast episodes on my book, Critical Perspectives on Diversity in Organisations. This time I'm going to be talking about chapter three, and the topic is history. And this is the first of three chapters in part two of the book, which refer to defining aspects of a critical perspective on diversity in organisations. And I really do feel that history is a defining aspect. I start the chapter by noting that we we need to maybe make a connection between history and seeing history as a critical perspective. And I quote the American historian Ira Berlin, who in his book on slavery and the history of slavery in the United States, reminds us that history is not in a literal sense, about the past. It is actually about the arguments we have about the past. And because it is about arguments we have, or could be having, it is about us. And so these kind of arguments I find quite persuasive about how history affects us all. It's something that we we live in an ongoing way in the present, as we, as we maybe choose how to discuss the past with each other, Um, And that is what makes it a potentially critical perspective. And with a lot of changes in research subjects or perspectives over time, sometimes in academic work we speak about what we call a turn in research, where some, some research appears over time which moves in a new direction. And in about the last 15 years or so, in people researching business, management and organisations in general, there has been what some people would describe as a historical turn, with people using historical methods, historical training, in terms of how they look at organisations and managers and management and think about the workplaces we we manage and organise and live in and work in today. There are related critical terms, which are a bit daunting to me. I don't pretend to be a historian myself or an expert in history, but I find this turn and some of the ideas in it very um, influential and interesting. And so there's language like historicism and historiography, which can be used to think a bit more deeply and a bit more critically about how we engage with history. Historicism typically might be used to refer to patterns in terms of how history seems to to unfold. And then the term historiography, we can see how the term sounds similar to biography or autobiography, but historiography may be um, slightly different in terms of thinking about how we read and write about history, who gets to write influential accounts of history, what they decide to include and put emphasis on. And that really leads me into some of the linkages between history and diversity, which make up the rest of the chapter. Before talking about diversity, I finally note the different ways, some, some, some useful different ways of thinking about history that I often incorporate in my teaching in terms of trying to introduce history for discussion in a business school environment.
So just reminding people, I think it's very interesting, there are different types of historical inquiry. Often we don't think about history at all in business schools or when we're talking about organisations. There's a tendency, I think, to focus often on the present and the future. And this would be what we call ahistorical. People are just interested in the here and now and what's coming next and what tools and techniques organisations might need going forward. Any passionate defender of history would argue that this is short-sighted, incomplete, and not especially critical way of apprehending the reality of the organisational world around us. So, for me, the first step is just thinking, if you are going to engage with history, what different types of historical inquiry are there? And I think there are probably many, many different types, but there's some useful basic types we can start with. You know, we can certainly look at biographical histories and autobiographical histories telling us about history through the story of a single individual's life. But then there are very different avenues. We could talk about a topic in history. We could pick almost any topic imaginable and think about it in terms of its history through time. We could also look at not just a person or a topic, but actually we could look at a time and a place, a particular part of the world, a particular decade or series of decades. And it could be a place broadly defined or narrowly defined in scope or location. And then finally, we could zoom in very close into what some people call micro-histories, where we might focus on a very specific single event. And of course, we can think of examples of, you know, a war or a protest or a march or some sort of crisis. We might refer to that as a micro-history. And of course, if we're actually going to do historical research, although that isn't necessarily the the subject of this chapter of the book, really, um, we need to dig deeper into primary data, things that were maybe written or said or captured at the time or from the time um, to bring that history to life. So it, it often involves looking at research that goes into archives. There may be some secondary data often used as well, of course, but we can think about maybe what makes good historical research that goes back to maybe primary sources in archives and tries to look at a variety of sources with a variety of critical and self-aware and honest and transparent analysis. Before I talk about diversity, one more point is just that people do see history in different ways. Sometimes these ways are quite biased, and so it's important to be aware of the different views of history people may be taking. It has implications for how we feel about the ability to to change and to believe in a better future. Some people may see history as fact, just something that has happened and will continue to happen to many people. It's, It's something that locks us into particular paths. This has perhaps got quite an objective bias and is not very critical. But we can also look at history and say, well, history is about power. Change can be very difficult, but there have been revolutions. There have been overthrows of dominant, powerful coalitions, and this has led to 
historical change. And then there are other perspectives that see history and change as something that people experience and interpret in different ways. And so different individuals and groups will come up with very different flexible interpretations that they may or may not share. And then perhaps most radically or critically, we could argue that all history is is often a matter of rhetoric. People are trying to persuade others and push their own versions of history to maybe manipulate or represent it in certain strategic ways. And this will lead to change in others and change over time. So just some examples, but I think people emphasize different things in history and this then has different effects on how we feel about it, how we interpret it and how we act on it and what sort of change we believe is possible. But in the body of this chapter, I link history and diversity. Obviously, the book being about diversity, that is the the, the most important emphasis in this chapter. Um, But there are many ways to do this. And in terms of space and focus, I decided to argue there are probably three main things that I felt it was important to cover here in terms of linking history and diversity. And those are firstly, slavery. Second, the idea that people are excluded or forgotten from history, or certain details and information may be erased about people. And thirdly and finally, which I briefly touched on in a previous episode, ideas of colonialism, anti-colonialism and post-colonialism. So to start with slavery, some of us may or may not be open to the relevance of the idea of slavery to modern organisations. But the more you think about it, I would argue, the more connections you may begin to see. It's not just the legacy of older forms of slavery, but we do continue to live with what researchers call modern slavery, There are many diverse settings around the world. It's sad to contemplate in many ways from a position of privilege, but millions of people globally in the global workforce working under conditions of modern slavery, whether it's in agriculture, shipping and and fishing, or other forms of production and supply chain environment. And this is difficult to regulate and a matter of ongoing concern. But from a historical perspective, there's always been this idea that organisations can be oppressive and instruments of domination, where one class or group of people can physically and psychologically dominate uh, another group for, for a prolonged period of time, cause them a lot of suffering and oppression. And so there is some work looking at American slavery and the antebellum period before the Civil War in the United States, particularly work by Bill Cook, which I talk about. And I feel that Bill Cook's work makes a strong case that slavery has a fundamental relevance to modern management. It has lingering influences in terms of how we think about factories and even the notion of a manager, which we can trace back to managers on plantations and and anti-African-American racism. Other researchers have continued to develop this line of thought and said that even if you go back to ancient so-called pre-modern settings like the Roman Republic and Empire and consider them alongside the United States antebellum South, we see enduring themes around elite groups, 
people who own and control land, certain leadership styles, forms of resistance and activism and revolt amongst oppressed minorities, and the notion that people work under highly unfree conditions. And so the idea that we now live in a modern, enlightened period is not as clear as, as many researchers might, might just want us to believe. I also note the opposing idea of emancipation, that under conditions of slavery, people may go through some sort of process where they try to free themselves from repressive conditions that are placing inhumane, unnecessary and oppressive restrictions on them. And they're trying to develop and articulate and express this consciousness. And this is typically a painful process. Unsurprisingly, people may be very afraid of what they're trying to do or hoping to achieve in revolt and resistance and emancipation. And they're trying to overcome restrictions imposed by a very powerful majority. And again, we can go back to United States history of slavery on plantations, and we see that some African-American slaves eventually freed themselves and became plantation managers and owners themselves, such as Benjamin Thornton Montgomery in the 19th century. And Montgomery showed a lot of perseverance and competence in how he emancipated himself and developed new forms of African-American management whilst withstanding ongoing racism and prejudice. So just raising our awareness and maybe taking proper account of this history and its great sins and achievements seems to me a powerful argument for thinking about the modern world of organisations and diversity as well. I then move on from slavery to the second theme of this chapter, again trying to just draw some connections and not really review absolutely everything, but I talk about figures in history, and I find this idea particularly powerful, that there are people in history who've maybe done great things but haven't been given enough credit for them in historical accounts. So I talk about unsung heroes, and then I think there are also people who've done terrible things in history that are not really preserved or accounted for. So I talk about secret villains. I also talk about forgotten stories and maybe forgotten narratives or versions of events, and just the general idea that certain forms of diversity, work, organisation, expression, have been erased to a degree from history or from main accounts of history. So we can speak critically about how diversity is erased from certain, in certain ways from history. Obviously, there are many modern biopics, biographies, film adaptations of great scientists and professionals who've overcome their min- you know, the oppression associated with their minority status, whether it's Alan Turing and homosexuality, John Nash and his mental health, or the African-American women mathematicians working for NASA who were described as hidden figures, who played a crucial role in America's space programme, but for many years their contributions were unheralded. So it seems to me there's a lot at stake in these historiographies, looking at the truth and the justice issues concerning diversity in organisations as we retrospectively 
try to try to debate the complexities of these organizational histories. So there's different times and places where people have faced slavery, harassment, racism, and maybe have have fought to to flourish and contribute to organizational life. And the legacy of this contains certain traces and influences that we need to think about in the present. There are also ideologies associated with history, social Darwinism, eugenics, things that date back to the Holocaust and the Victorian period. And many organisations have uncomfortable affiliations with these prejudicial organisations, leaders, political parties and other individuals lurking in their histories. So I talk about some examples of that. One interesting example that I came across in the course of writing this book was Hans Asperger's and the history of autism and the autistic spectrum, obviously with implications for the inclusion of disability. One of the uncomfortable aspects of Hans Asperger and the history of Asperger's and the discovery of it as a syndrome, which continues to be so influential today, is that Hans Asperger's was affiliated with the Nazi National Socialist organisations in 1940s Vienna. And as a figure whose name lives on in the label of Asperger's today, we can look at the history of autism and the history of disability and we can see how we maybe still need to face up to some problems around how we diagnose disabilities, how we treat them, and how we promote ideas about their inclusion in society. I also again draw on work by Bill Cook, which looks at how certain aspects of history get erased or written out of accounts as we move later into the 20th century and the 21st, often when we read about management and organisations, a lot of work doesn't talk about left-wing ideas, it doesn't talk about the nuances of communism, and often it doesn't talk about the role of gender and women in discussing change management, organisational interventions, and just the idea that organisations are not simply neutral, technical places, because this is often associated with white, western, masculine and quite conservative ideas and the deeper we dig the more we find out about struggles what went on in different organizational settings the true legacy of innovations and the many people who contribute to them and so this more reflection this more reflective self-aware version of looking at history can help us to understand how things have maybe been whitewashed or excluded and buried under interpretations that we we live with today that signal a certain sense of privilege and universal progress and a status quo that is at danger. There's a real risk that we forget diversity and we forget its legacy and its value in our societies and organisations. The third and final theme is colonialism and post-colonialism. And I think no discussion of diversity in history would be, com- would be complete without discussing this. I mentioned it briefly in an earlier episode around globalisation and international business and how there's a history of international relations with powerful countries which had long, long, for hundreds of years, colonial regimes which were designed to achieve work and organisation by subjugating other populations 
in other countries and parts of the world. So we think about the great imperial powers, Western Europe, the United States, we might talk about the developed world, the global north, or white settlers. And the idea that organisation was imposed through others, through other people who did not fit this powerful, privileged norm. Slaves, migrants, indigenous populations, and how they became associated with certain ideas. Natives, exotic, foreign, primitive, other populations. And again, a lot of modern mainstream work on management and organisations just doesn't talk about this. It's ahistorical, it's globalist, it takes globalisation for granted and largely focuses on neutral technical discussions of how to run an effective multinational corporation or enterprise. But critically, we should be talking and thinking about what some scholars have called the rest of the world, not excluding the complex history of everything outside of Western management knowledge. But it's also about the relationship between the West and Western imperial powers and the rest of the world. And so I, I talk briefly about drawing on other researchers' accounts, key figures and key thinkers in this post-colonial tradition. And I talk about three of them, Edward Said, Gayatri Spivak and Homi Baba. There are many, many other thinkers, but these are three of the most influential. And I think without delving into too much detail in this particular episode of this podcast, all three thinkers talk about the relationship between Western knowledge and Western power and how women and minorities from the East or the South or other parts of the globe try to try to rest, wrestle back their own independence or feel oppressed by the fact that they fall outside of that powerful Western framework of knowledge. And in many cases there is violence and aggression and the question of how to resist this oppressive gaze and influence of a long, long legacy of Western and imperial colonial power. So I talk about some research that continues to emerge in this tradition. And there's a lot of great critical research that is helping non-Western minorities to speak back against this colonial version of management and organisation and to appreciate that in Africa and Asia and in indigenous, indigenous settings like the Maori in New Zealand, they are still reckoning with and resisting neoliberal politics and other globalist agendas in terms of trying to produce their own knowledge and be recognised as subjects and participants in our world with their own valid causes and interests that need to be fairly represented. And under this white gaze, or this Western gaze of the world looking on, migrants and, and communities of people who've dispersed around the world continue to face ambivalence and uncomfortable strugglings, struggles and forms of resistance in their daily work and professional lives. So I finished this uh, chapter but with some further case studies and examples of critical historical research with relevance to diversity. I briefly note how we can tell different versions of 
history, where we look at cosmopolitan mixed cultural heritage around the world in eastern and southern settings. I talk briefly about the issue of immigration and I talk about the Windrush scandal in the UK and how Jamaican immigration continues to produce a sense of unbelonging among Jamaicans in the UK, ongoing episodes of inhumane treatment, detention and, and deportation around the world as well. But looking back at history can continue to help us in looking forward with diversity and to tell these different histories in a more inclusive and emancipatory fashion. And so I give some further examples of pieces of research that look at histories of organisations, some organisations that have been quite progressive for their time on things like LGBT and minority rights and corporate social responsibility, organisations that have, and industries that have had workers who have participated in struggles to progress different waves of feminism and women's rights. I also look at decolonialization and anti-colonialization in how some organizations have become more cosmopolitan over time and try to promote more inclusive global diversity and inclusion practices. And then I finish with a few concluding thoughts around how we think about history. And hopefully, you know, it will be something that people continue to turn to and continue to talk about when they think about diversity in organisations. They can adopt this critical perspective as a set of tools for continuing to understand struggles and suffering in public life, but maybe also be a source of healing and redemption. And I allude to you know, the embattled minorities who deserve greater recognition and remembrance in our organisations and societies. And you may be aware of the many ongoing debates and struggles around statues and monuments put up to people who are maybe not believed to deserve the level of esteem afforded them. And so if we want to engage diversity in history, we need to use our imagination and we need to use our, our critical thinking skills in how we do that. The past can contain seeds of hope and redemption amidst a lot of the ruins and destruction and suffering. Also, I talk about the value of historical fiction and in terms of how we use our imagination to maybe craft stories from the past and make history relatable and something that we can vicariously, vicariously experience. And so in a playful sense, we're, we're all probably doing history whenever we watch a documentary or read a piece of historical fiction. So there are different ways of reading and writing history. And the writer uh, and novelist Hilary Mansell talks about making the old new again, which I find a really powerful idea. And in terms of organisations and diversity, it could be gender history, political history, economic history, imperial history, or any other number of critical ways of thinking about the past and bringing it to life in terms of how we hope for better organisations and better inclusion of diversity today. And I mentioned the some of the many, many great scholars by name at the end of this chapter as well. But there are many, many people continuing to work in this tradition. So hopefully, next time you're researching a topic or thinking about 
trying to change something in your organization, you'll be able to turn more, if, you, if you're not doing so already, uh, to some of the things I've touched on in this, in this chapter uh, and many of the great pieces of historical research about management diversity and organization that continue to emerge. So that's it for chapter three on history and this time. Next time I'll be talking about another foundational aspect of critical perspectives on diversity in organizations and that is power. So hopefully I'll, I'll see you again next time and thanks for listening to this episode of this podcast.